It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Dana Perino, and this is Perino on Politics. Tragedy unfolded in Israel this weekend after Hamas militants unleashed an unprecedented terror attack on the country. On Sunday, Israel formally declared war on Hamas. That's the first declaration of its kind in 50 years. As the death toll in Israel continues to rise, the weekend's attack has only increased attention to U.S. foreign policy and national security, issues that are already at the forefront of the 2024 presidential race. Joining me today with a look at the current state of world politics is my friend, Selena Zito. Selena, it's great to have you. She's a national political reporter and columnist with the Washington Examiner. She is a columnist for the New York Post, and she has a very keen eye for both national and local politics. She has interviewed every president and vice president in the 21st century, while also remaining heavily tuned in to state races and voter conversations as well. Selena, welcome to the conversation here on Perino on Politics. And before we talk just about politics, I did want to give you a chance to provide your thoughts and reactions to the horrific and horrendous terrorist attack against Israel over the weekend. Yeah, you know, I accidentally woke up at two o'clock in the morning on Saturday. And as a lot of people that are involved in media, we tend to look at our devices to see anything that was happening in the world. And you just start seeing it happening in real time. And it has been very hard for me to pull myself away from it. It reminds me, uh, and then this has been repeated a lot, of 9-11. And but it also and in particular because of the surprise of it, the sort of we had no idea this was coming notion. And it also sort of reminds me of how reflective we became in the days and weeks after 9-11 when we sort of started to understand that we had taken our eyes off the ball uh, in, in a lot of ways, because as a country, we were so absorbed in what sometimes was just silly political fights. And 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 it just seems as though we were in the same situation going in, in this moment. We have been so self-absorbed that we really didn't under and, and Israel has been self, you know, has had its own sort of cat and fight going on. And so I think that um, that is that is something, you know, a, a lot of people are really thinking about. Is it really necessary to be this, you know, all these battles between ourselves and what we miss when we are so focused on them? Yeah. I was thinking about a story that I heard right before I joined the administration, the Bush administration in 2001. So I did not come to back to DC until after the 9-11 attacks. And I joined the Justice Department, but I had friends who were working in the White House communications team at the time, and they stayed late on the night of September 10th, Monday, September 10th. They stayed real late because they were working on this problem because the New York Times, I guess, was gonna zing them in the morning. And the topic was the Vice President Dick Cheney's Energy Task Force. Oh gosh. And the next morning, of course, nobody ever talked about that task force again. 
So it it does certainly have a way of focusing the mind. And the other thing is, Selena, we can talk a little bit politics now. At the debate in Simi Valley, one of my questions was about the farther we get from September 11th, the closer we are to September 10th. Yes. And wanted the candidates to have an opportunity to talk about their experience and how they could respond to it. From your reporting, where does foreign policy and America's role in the world fit into voters that you talk to, fit into their, I guess, calculations as to who they decide who they're going to vote for? More so, I thought that question was so important, and in particular, the way you framed it, because we we rarely stop to think about who we were the day before, right? We rarely stop to think about what we were thinking about the day before September 11th. And while voters don't always articulate it in a way that is pick up, picked up by posters or interviewers, our state of security in this country is very, very important. It's just that we don't see it in the traditional way that we used to see it. The fear comes from a lot of times from the open border, okay? That's number one, because they have no, they have no idea who is coming across. Yes, obviously there are migrant families that are, that are escaping horrific experiences and lives in South America. However, they are shoulder to shoulder with unknowns. People, we don't know what their motivations are. We don't know uh, if if uh, what their sentiment is about our country, and we don't know if they have uh, if they are terrorists. We just don't know that. And a lot of times, you see people being ridiculed for having that fear. But I think that today we need to stop and say, "Well, my goodness, who is everyone that is coming across this border?" Uh, we're not. We, it's never addressed. Um, by this administration. I heard Kevin McCarthy, former speaker, Kevin McCarthy, which we'll talk about in a moment, say that we caught more people in one month of February of 2023 on the terror watch list coming across the southern border than they did coming into the country in the entire four years of the Trump administration. And I know that Vivek Ramaswamy was at the northern border over the weekend talking about increased crossings from the north. And it does feel like America is not being very smart. I mean, I wonder if that's the feeling that you get like, wait, what is the what yes. is going on that they're not focusing on protecting us? That that is a very good point. And and you hear this from voters across all political denominations. Even the most staunchest Democrat in, you know, sort of the middle of America, where I do most of my reporting, is completely perplexed by what the end game is for the Biden administration to pretend nothing is happening at our borders. They, they don't understand what's the upside of, of letting this happen. What is the upside of, of just letting anybody in? There's no positive end game for this. And, and now that it has moved from just seeing border towns experiencing this to seeing um, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, wherever the uh, busloads Denver. of 
Oh yeah, Den- Denver. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We don't know what's what's coming across. And just before I came on the air with you today, there was a um, a report out about a Philadelphia in Philadelphia, a, a young seventeen year old was um, a- attempting to commit. I mean, he killed someone, and he was attempting. He was he came here with terrorist intentions. Mm-hmm. We. How how many are the of those are are out there? It, it it's just nine eleven was only twenty one years ago. We can't have forgotten that much history. Do not mm-hmm. realize the vulnerabilities that we have set up, and that's where voters are on on foreign policy. They don't feel as though we have strength that we have sort of an upper hand, um, and and it also goes to China and Russia. Uh, a lot has to do with um, China spying on us, on uh, and 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 Russia, the insecurities with Russia. So foreign policy may not be articulated in when you are out in Iowa and New Hampshire in a way that you think traditionally of foreign policy. But how their lives are impacted and how fearful they are have been there. We just haven't listened as well as we should. Can you also speak to a little bit on the foreign policy issue of the Ukraine funding? Because I think when Kevin McCarthy spent some time looking back at the end of his speakership, this issue about providing more funding through the Congress for the Biden administration to get to the Ukrainians was really a dividing line. And in your reporting, as you talk to people in the heartland, is that really uh, an issue that people are focused on? No, not really. I I think, look, we have to remember that there are, are first, second, and third generation families that came from Ukraine or places very similar in the surrounding areas, in the Baltics and Poland, right? And and their their grandmothers or their great grandmothers or they themselves have settled in this country and you know they they have a point in that if we do not protect this. Um, there, there goes the other countries surrounding it that we can't let Russia do this. However, th- they're very confused by what Biden is or isn't doing with Ukraine. Okay, if we're all in, then why aren't we all in? We've dragged this out for two years and we keep giving all of this money. Are we in and helping them or are we not? I think if there was more clarity from from Biden and the administration rather than sort of trying to both ways it that um that people would either buy in or buy out of it so people are just sort of on the fence it's not a driving force but it it, it sort of just lingers there last question here in this segment uh, about foreign policy you have the two front runners joe biden and former president trump and when you talk about the voters that you speak to saying that they want a strong America, do they think that President Trump would give that to them? Like, is that on the forefront of their mind? And maybe it, it might not be. I, I, I don't know. As you said, foreign policy is not necessarily the number one issue, but safety and security is. And will that be if indeed Trump is the front runner or another Republican? Will people be looking for a change? People will definitely be looking for the change. I think, Dana, we are at a tipping point, but we're not quite sure what it's tipping to, right? We're not quite sure in terms of this, of of the impact of what's happening in Israel. 
you know, the the Democrats have challenges on their hand when you see a lot of these uh, new members of Congress, even new local elected officials who came out of the DSA, right? And the Democratic Socialists of America, right here in Western Pennsylvania, we have several of them on the precipice of becoming uh, uh, leaders in local government, depending on what happens in the November elections. The DSA brought them to the table. How do they handle that? And that that's a challenge for uh for Democrats and and for the Republicans, they're you know Republicans are all over the place. I understand that Trump is ahead, and and for the most part, Republicans t- tend to have the upper hand on security and national security. And uh, but you know, there still is this concern among. Republican voters, I know it's not showing up in in the polling on national polls, but they're still concerned about Donald Trump and how he his his comportment and what that impact has on a large conflict like this. This isn't going away in weeks and or or even a couple of months. This is blazing in our lives every day. And I, I think we will see who handles this best and who navigates this best as to uh, who comes out on front. But I, uh, to, that's like a long way of saying Trump still has the upper hand over Biden on, on this issue. Uh, and, and I think Republicans overall do as well. All right. Before we wrap up this segment, I've got a candidate quotable. Which presidential candidate is responsible for the following statement? America is incredibly distracted and incredibly divided. And when America is distracted, the world is left safe. And look at what happened to Israel. They waited for them to be distracted. And that's when your enemies move in. America needs to wake up. We'll have that answer coming right up. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. All right, Selena, we talked a little bit about the politics of foreign policy in the presidential race. Can I just get your take on the GOP primary, where we are today today? about two weeks before the next Republican primary debate is supposed to get started and a little less than three months before the first votes in Iowa? Well, my experiences on the ground in Iowa and New Hampshire have been that these voters have not made their mind up. In fact, they're nowhere near to making their mind up. But the candidates that are are, are making headway Underneath the headlines, I would say Ron DeSantis is making great headways in Iowa. He's very appealing to the evangelical and Catholic vote. And that is essentially the base of the uh, Republican Party in an Iowa caucus. You need to show up. You need to shake hands. You need to go in their living rooms and talk to them. And they need to kick the tires. And DeSantis has been sort of the shining star in that. And what evangelical and Catholic voters have been saying, they don't particularly care the fact that Trump parachutes in, parachutes out. 
He doesn't get how you win Iowa. And he didn't get that in 2016, which is why he didn't win it. But they were watching him. He did come in second. And that had a lot to do with voters wanting someone who would have their back on freedom of religion issues in, in terms of the Supreme Court. Uh, in New Hampshire, Again, New, New Hampshire is lovely for a reporter to cover because it's like covering a small congressional race. The, the, the state is small. It's very intimate. Um, lots of town halls. Uh, and and uh, Nikki Haley has been, from the moment she got there, really connecting with these voters. She is... Um, she goes to their town halls. She'll sit in a round table with 12 people on it and, and treats it as though she's there with 10,000 people. And I think that's really important. And I think what we also need to remember about New Hampshire is that New Hampshire voters can, can register on the day of the primary and vote whatever party they want to. Well, since the Democrats... Uh, have basically told New Hampshire, sorry, you don't matter this year. That is making a lot of centrist and moderate Democrat voters take their eye away from the Democrats, listen to the Republicans, and Nikki Haley is ascending among those voters. Is Chris Christie as well? I saw a poll over the weekend that looked like he was hanging in, in New Hampshire too. Yep. Yeah, I would I would say that 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 is a three way race between Haley, Christie and Trump. And I think that we cannot discount the influence that Governor Sununu has in that state. He is mm -hmm. beloved in that state. And Why hasn't DeSantis been able to gain a foothold there? Mainly because he's spending all of his time in Iowa. OK. You know, that's that's a really difficult thing to straddle, right, to be mm -hmm. in both states. I think his message resonates in New Hampshire. I would put him in, at, a, at, a, at a, a close second. But, you know, I think it would not be shocking if we have DeSantis went Iowa, Haley went New Hampshire or possibly Christie, and we go into South Carolina and it's like game on, <laughs> right? All of a sudden, everything has changed. And you and I have been around long enough to know that that has happened a thousand times, yeah. right? Or at least several times for us in modern American history. Think of Howard Dean. He was inevitable, right? Until he wasn't. So it exploded in New Hampshire. Yeah. And and well, and remember Clinton. President George W. Bush as governor in 2000. You'll remember he lost in New Hampshire, yep. wins in Iowa, loses badly in New Hampshire and goes on to win in South Carolina. Um, you right. haven't mentioned let's just do a, maybe a quick hit on these three people before. Oh, let me do four. Let me let me write them all down. Don't want to miss <laughs> anybody. Get those calls from the campaign complaining. Uh, Tim Scott, what's going on? Uh, I think Tim Scott is a very inspirational candidate. He hasn't always shown that, though, uh, in the debate. I think he has struggled in, in the debate, and it may be because he's he's never sort of had to have, you know, his his elections have been, uh, for, for the U.S. Senate, have been, not, I'm not going to say easy, but certainly not the kind of uh, campaign we see in a presidential, right? And so I don't think he's had his moment. And I don't even mean a debate moment. Uh, you know, if you look back and remember in 2008, Dana, Barack Obama was flailing. Like he was not getting, and people forget this. 
he he was not doing very well against Hillary until until he found purpose and purpose was hope and change. And, and, and it was a sentiment of aspiration. And that's when all of a sudden he started to gain steam and people started looking his way. I don't know if any of them have had that make America great again in 2016 was aspirational and people miss that. But now it's just a throwaway slang term in the press um, and and so I think there some. No, but he started a movement. He did. Right. He did. And right. I think President Trump did when he did make America great again. Yep. But somebody who was on his team uh, was Mike Pence. And where is his candidacy right now, in your opinion? Or uh, not opinion, in your reporting, I should say. Well, he's he's just struggling here. Here's here's Mike Pence's problem. People respect the heck out of him. Right. They really admire him as a governor, as a member of leadership in Congress, um, as a vice president. However, he's not connecting the way that he needs to, um, because, as you know, you need a coalition to win an election. And he's not drawing enough different kinds of voters towards him, where I would argue that Haley and DeSantis have been successful in pulling together a coalition. And that's the part that's important that we often miss. And what about, uh, we'll do two more, Vivek Ramaswamy? Vivek Ramaswamy has captured the imagination of a lot of young people. Uh, I even see my son-in-law and his friends giving him a second look and saying, hey, we kind of, you know, he's young. We kind of like... Um, his, his, his breaking the mold kind of attitude. Uh, but, you know, you have to also, I, I think they're struggling with some of the positions that he's taken. So I think that he ends up coming in probably a distant third. Okay. The last one, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. Oh, I had a blast interviewing him in North Dakota because, you know, North Dakota, right? Uh, you look, he he is a great governor. He came out of nowhere in 2016. I think he was down like 40 points before the primary, right? And and so he has a great message. I don't know what, I, I can't predict what happens with him, but certainly he is an interesting and part of the of the party. And what a competent person, right? So yes. I live like a farmer. His dad dies when he's 19. He saves the family farm by working his butt off and all these different jobs. Comes up with a great idea, hires local farm guys and says, let's start do the software business together. Sells it to Microsoft. Comes back yep. to North Dakota and he wants to run that state well. And I think he's a very impressive guy. And but yep. not getting a foothold. Um, one other question I wanted to ask you about you had some developing news while I was away uh, in Pennsylvania with a GOP Senate candidate. And I don't know how often this has ever happened, but the state GOP in Pennsylvania has unanimously backed Dave McCormick to be their Senate candidate. Tell me a little bit about that and how different that is from just two years ago when right. he had that knockdown drag out with Dr. Oz. Yeah, it's you know, I've been covering Pennsylvania politics for three decades. Can't remember that's ever happening. Mm. This is a really, really big deal. And here's why. First of all, the frivolous part. It, it really makes fundraising good for, for McCormick. 
right? The, the, he's able to get out there. He doesn't have to spend a lot of time fighting and bickering with with other candidates that are nipping at him. So you, th that's tops. But more importantly, this state party is, and, and I say this with most kindness, really dysfunctional and all over the place. The fact that they all came together unanimously, all 67 counties, and if you think of the diversity of Pennsylvania's counties, that's astounding. Uh, they just that just doesn't happen. And and I know that this struck fear in the Casey people because they had an expectation that this would never happen. And so it, it caught them a little flat footed because now one of the things that they were going to go after him on and there's going to be a number of them. Uh, one of the things that they were going to go after him on um, no longer exists. So I, I think it was important that that since he lost that primary, McCormick has been out there in all the counties. He's been going to pancake breakfast and gun giveaways. He actually and, seems and to enjoy it. He really like, he does. loves to be it amongst the people. He's he he ha he has that rare ability to to of connectivity, mm -hmm. and that has a lot to do with his life being all over the place. Right? He grew. He was born and spent the first seven years of his life in a blue collar to uh, Washington County. His parents were both educators. His father miraculously got this great job in, an, in another small county, Columbia County, um, over in the middle of the state, becomes the head of this small college in, in Bloomsburg. And he grow and again, very blue collar town. He plays football, he does wrestling, becomes the first person from his town to be appointed to West Point. They they have like this big, make this big deal and he's in a parade. Like this is like the American Let me ask story. you this. Can he win the general election against the incumbent Senator Casey? Yeah, he can definitely. I mean, it's going to be a tight race. Uh, there's an expensive race, too, huh? Expensive race. It's going to be a tough race. Uh, Casey's problem threefold. Joe Biden's at the top of the ticket. He yep. is arm in arm with him shoulder to shoulder with him. John Fetterman walks around with this freakishly life-size head of Bob Casey with him at all times. I don't think Fetterman helps him at all. Nope. And, uh, and, and, and the fact that he is going for a fourth term, it's interesting to ask when I ask voters, what is, what, what has he done for the state or, you know, what is he known for in legislation? And there's no answer. Like that's, you've been around for four, Three terms. You need you, people should know what you're you're you known have for. something to say for it. All yeah. right. We are going to take a quick break, but I'm going to give you the answer to your candidate quotable. Here it is. America is incredibly distracted and incredibly divided. And when America's distracted, the world is less safe. And look at what happened to Israel. They waited for them to be distracted. And that's when your enemies move in. Mm. America needs to wake up. Yes, that quote is from former U.N. ambassador and former governor to South Carolina, Nikki Haley. We'll have more Perino on politics coming up. Welcome back to Perino on Politics. Now, I'd like to ask this question of you, Selena, which is, what do you think I am missing? But before I get to that, I did want to ask you about what you hear regarding a topic I also brought up at the debate, which is this child care crisis in America that's affecting not just the low-income families, but certainly, to be sure, low-income families. 
But middle income families, high middle income families, not being able to find childcare, not being able to afford it, it's increasing at twice the rate of inflation. The COVID funds that were keeping a lot of those daycares afloat are now um, going to basically go away. They can't keep up with inflation. They can't pay their workers and people can't find competent, good care for their children. This is a huge problem. And are you hearing about it? Absolutely. This is like the conversation about the price of milk in that it affects everyone. It's the core of a family's budget. And yet, and that politics doesn't seem to understand the magnitude of it. And the same with childcare. There are very few people that don't use childcare in some fashion uh, as part of their family budget, right? They have to go to work. Uh, They have to support their family, uh, whether they're low income, middle income, high income. And to your point, not only being able to afford it, but also find someone you trust Mm -hmm. to take care of your children has also become a tipping point for a lot of parents. And a lot of parents are making decisions that they can't afford where they one of the um, parents is staying home. And so we, we really are in there, there are there are these little the things that seem little on on the list of things that people care about are actually utmost important to what thing uh, things that people care about. Do you hear about. any candidates and, talking about it? Not really. I know. It's just weird to me. It is. It is. I, I would if I were a candidate, I would focus on the price of milk and these bread and butter issues, child care education, um, security and safety, crime. These are the things that people are really deeply concerned about, that they look around in their community and they say, oh, my goodness, you know, why is no one addressing this? And it's from the top down. It's not just presidential candidates, local candidates as well. um, Focus too much on national issues and missing the fact that people want you to keep the trains run on time. They want you to keep your bridges and um, roads safe. They want to keep the streets safe and and they can't afford anything. Uh, it, it is there. I don't know if you remember this or not, because you're much younger than me, but there was this cover of Life magazine in 1979, I think it was, and it had, and inflation was insane at that moment, and it had this bottle of milk in a glass jar that had fallen on the ground at this family's home, and their family was wrecked for the next two weeks because that was the staple in their family, and they couldn't even afford to go buy another bottle of milk. And I feel like we are in that bottle of milk moment on a number of things. And we're just a drop or spill of milk away from catastrophic disaster in our family budgets. Mm. Selena, I read a piece in The New York Times yesterday that really struck me. And it was about two different families. One that had decided to move Well, both had decided to move one from Iowa to Minnesota and the other from Oregon to Missouri. And they cited politics and legislative decisions in those states Um, for the family in Iowa. It was about getting transgender care for their daughter who uh, said that she wanted to identify as a man. And then you had the family in Oregon 
just fed up with the crime and the lawlessness as they saw it, and they moved to Missouri. And because you travel the country and you usually do it by car. Um, yes, I, I, I <laughs> This piece really struck me, and I just thought I would maybe end with a question about that to you. Are you hearing more and more about people who actually want to pick up and leave their communities, even if they don't want to leave? They're making that very wrenching decision to make a huge change in their life because of politics? I hear it all the time. Mm. And not only do people talk about leaving, I interview people a, a lot that have moved because, or because of politics. And they feel as though they have no control because of the heavy hand of government, whatever side of the aisle you're on. Uh, the heavy hand of government is, is causing them to be fearful. A lot of these moves fracture families, disrupt families, but they feel as though for their well-being and for the future, it is the best decision for their families. Mm -hmm. well, it was really striking to me. And I think you we're in such an interesting moment in terms of political realignment and this election. Oh, yeah. I just sort of feel like, even though I can look at this and say, okay, pretty much you could guess what's going to happen next year. But this really feels like anything could happen at this moment on on both sides, but even perhaps more on the Democratic side than Republicans at this point. I don't disagree with you. So I've been doing this three-part series. By the way, if people want to read my stuff, they can just go to selenazito.com. But I'm doing this three-part series of looking at um, the three, what I think, emerging sort of silos of, of who's going to decide this election. There are the ride or die Biden voters, ride or die Trump voters. And then there are the voters that don't want either one of them. <laughs> and I, I hear it more on the Democrat than I do with the Republican side. And the Democrats, they just had their meeting uh, in Missouri, I think, this weekend. They're the NC meeting. And, and you know, I had a couple of flies on the wall call me and say, yeah, nobody's worried about that. And, I, and I'm thinking, have you talked to your voters? I know. Because populism <laughs> goes two ways. Sure does. You can show up, but also sitting sitting at home is a form of populism, right? Sure. Not voting, that's a form of populism that we don't always address. But that's just as potent as showing up en masse for, for someone. And I think they are facing that problem. They and, faced it with Hillary Clinton, and mm -hmm. they're not it right now. Kristen Salty-Sanderson is a political commentator, pollster, uh, writer. She she talks about the double haters, people who yes. hate both. But she said hate yes. can be a motivator because you might hate someone more than the other. And then that's why I think when to just bring this conversation full circle, when Obama landed on hope and change, he then he was off to the races because nobody wants to be motivated to vote against somebody because you hate them, but you want to feel inspired right. to vote for somebody right. because you believe in them. Um, and we're just in an interesting, interesting time, Selena, and having you as a guest today, I could not have had a more perfect guest for this day. I do have a little trivia before we go. Um, I have three categories you get to choose. Which of these three categories? And you only get one question. So I have presidential pets, candidate LinkedIn, and presidential potpourri. I'm going potpourri because I always love something that smells good. Okay. Twice in American <laughs> history, we've seen three different presidents hold office during a calendar year. 
In which years did this happen? Let's see. Twice in American history, we've seen three different presidents hold office during a calendar year. In which years did this happen? It happened twice. This is hard. Um, I asked for the trivia to be harder, but I think this is like they revved it up to to a really. This is like <laughs> this is like some serious next level. I'm just going to um, tell you, were... it's 1841 and 1881, and I don't know how Jason Bonewald thought you were ever going to come up with that. But um, let me ask you a different one. Lyndon B. Johnson had a set of beagles while at the White House. The presidential duo were named Mr. and Mrs. Him and Her, or Commander and Colonel. I'm going to go with Commander and Colonel. No, that's a, those are Bidens, and that's a Commander. That's the Biter. Oh, that's, that's right. Biter. Lyndon right. B. Johnson, LBJ, and his wife had two dogs, and they named them Him and Her. <laughs> Weird decision. <laughs> I, maybe they well, couldn't agree someone, on names. I guess. I I think so. You're a dog owner. I'm a dog owner. I would have never even imagined that. Uh, why? Just that's uh, LBJ for you. And what's your dog's name? Barry. All right. We've got Barry and Percy. And we will sign off. Selena, thank you. I'll talk to you again soon. This has been Perino Thanks on so Politics. M- Thanks so much. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.